Welcome to the Write It Down podcast with the 1513 Network. I'm Brooke Murata, bringing you one-on-one interviews to challenge, inspire, and encourage. Joining us today is the lovely and beautiful Cynthia Garrett. Cynthia is a wonder woman. After receiving her graduate degree from law school at the University of Southern California, she went on to study comparative law at Oxford University in England. If that isn't impressive enough, Cynthia became a television personality and popular face on VH1. She's interviewed A-list celebrities and hosted award shows like the Grammys, Emmys, and VMAs, to name a few. Cynthia also became the first woman of color to ever host a network late-night TV show on NBC as host of Later with Cynthia Garrett. The list of accolades goes on and on, but perhaps you'll discover during our conversation she is first and foremost a walking and talking example for Jesus. Sit back, relax, and get your pens ready, because this is Write It Down. Welcome back to the Write It Down podcast. I'm your host, Brooke Murata, on the line with California native, television personality, actress, and author, Cynthia Garrett. Cynthia, welcome to Write It Down. Thanks, Brooke. It's happy, and I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Me too. Overjoyed, I must say. Um, and I have to start off with this, Cynthia. You are a stunning human being, like drop-dead gorgeous, bold and radiant. Um, so I'm that's not the reason why I'm excited to have you on the show, but I am really excited to have you on the show um, just by what you stand for and how bold you are, but not to mention you are gorgeous and this is an audio recording. So people, you should look <laughs> her up because she is a model, but um, how, oh, how did you end up in the entertainment industry? I mean, hosting shows on VH1 and later landing into NBC. Oh, how did I? Well, I'll tell you, I, I ended up there, and it was definitely, in some ways, by design. And then, in many ways, you know, by by spiritual, you know, providence. And mm-hmm. by what I mean by that is, I was one of those kids who was born kind of always knowing what I wanted to do. Like, I, I think I came out of the womb and said, Mommy, I want my own talk show. <laughs> and, you know, and I I really lived in my head a lot of my childhood about, my show and my life when I, and, and all of these, you know, I wanted to make, be a part of the media and to make uh, media that mattered and, and media that moved people, whether it was movies or TV programs or through writing books and screenplays or, you know, through hosting talk shows and using my voice. And, you know, media really is, art actually really is just about using your voice, you know? So whether you're, I, I, I'm kind of a consummate artist in the sense that, you know, I, I've gone through very different seasons of my life where my voice was expressed in different ways. Like one season I painted, you know, but it was still, I was painting messages, you know, mm-hmm. messages that, messages that God was giving me, you know, and, and, and then in some seasons I would write a lot more. And then some seasons I, you know, was on camera working for, you know, whether it was NBC or HBO or, or I've done so many different kinds of network television productions as a host because I realized that the biggest part of my creativity is my need to express what I feel is true. And as I've grown in my walk as a Christian, what I've learned is that the foundation of what I need to express is why God gives me the platform mm-hmm. because my need to express is, is centered around him, mm-hmm. you know, and how other people can walk more powerfully and authentically 
by knowing him more yeah, and understanding him more, you know? Was that like a fine line to walk when you're, you know, in, in the entertainment industry around celebrities, a lot of money, um, fame and power? Like, how do you feel like um, you fared in those situations, especially being younger in the industry at that time? Well, when I was younger, I fared not so well most of the time mm-hmm. and well sometimes, but I think for the most part, you know, when I was younger, I just, you know, I, 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 I don't know. Let's see. I, maybe I, I fell more than fared well. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. it's just very, it, it was very difficult uh, to keep God as Lord of my life. It, you know, it through my years as a young person, a young person in my faith and a young person in Hollywood working on TV, you know, there were things that I just didn't know about my identity in Christ, you know? So, you know, it's funny, like, so now I, I look at some of the things that I used to wear on red carpets and I'm kind of, you know, and mm-hmm. now I have this, you know, woman's ministry I founded and I, and I, and I love sewing into the lives of young girls. And, and I'm always like, well, there are a few outfits I wish I didn't choose to wear because it gets really interesting with some pa- when some pastor's kids look me up and they're like, oh, I saw you on the red carpet with Rosie O'Donnell or something. And I'm like, oh, oh really? Yeah, sorry. I, I, rem- I remember that dress. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. Right, you know? Yeah. It's, and, but it's like, but, you know, I mean, it is what it is. And I thank God that he sees us in the future and we look much better than we do today. <laughs> yeah, of course. There's no condemnation you know? in that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, and so. I feel like a, like a large, a large part of your testimony. Um, I mean, you're, you're in your young twenties, you graduate from the university of Southern California with law that led you into Oxford to study comparative law. So what, so what's a snapshot of that life like for you before you entered into that entertainment world? Um, I always wanted to go to law school. You know, I, I had uh, a great attraction to understanding the ways that, you know, it would it would cause me to think and reason. I've, I've always been a person that is, you know, looks at all sides of an argument anyway. So it kind of naturally fits who I am. I, I like, you know, the Bible says, come let us reason together that God is good. I like that because I do believe that the law is really and truly about reasoning together that God is good. And you, you know, you, you take a scripture or you take, you know, a, a law, a rule, and then you, you take a set of circumstances and facts. Mm-hmm. And you realize that applying that black letter of the law to the circumstances and facts is oftentimes, it's not that it's subjective, but the circumstances and the facts do play a part in many, you know, many situations. And Mostly for me, you know, I was, I've always been a critical thinker in the sense that, you know, I would look at my relationship with God or, you know, and, and the Bible and kind of go, well, hmm, but th- there are definitely some, you know, scripture is really not, it's not up for man's interpretation, mm-hmm. you know, and so I don't know, I, I, even in law school, I would compare my faith and look at my faith while I was in law school realizing that as much as I loved studying the law and was drawn to studying the law, it was still very different, the application of it, than, you know, than, than God's law. So 
I don't know. I, that's kind of a convoluted answer, but I guess. No. Yeah, it's good. You know, I, yeah, I was just, I was drawn to law school. I really, I really was, you know, I just, I was really drawn to going and look, practically, I also felt that I wanted a fallback. You know, I, I, I felt like I'd chosen this career that, you know, um, could be very iffy to ever start in. And so I was like, okay, so law school will be my plan B. And, you know, I very, I very quickly learned that when you're really, when you're really driven with a dream, there, there really is no plan B. There are no parachutes. Yeah. No. (laughs) You just, yeah, you just get in and you have faith and you're willing to go down with the ship. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, for sure. Especially when you feel like God's given you a call on your life. You're just like, I don't know how this is going to happen, but I have faith enough that it will. And so for you, Cynthia, when was that time for you when you really decided to follow the Lord? Did you raise up? Were you uh, raised up that way or was it more like this radical moment in your life? You know, um, I always believed in Christ. I always believed in God. And it wasn't necessarily that I was, I, I mean, I had a foundation, right? My mom, my mom is a really good, you know, Roman Catholic. Her, her, my, her mother, my grandmother was Italian. Mm-hmm. And so she, she believed that, you know, for her kids, she would send us to Catholic school and that would set a foundation for do unto others as you would have them do unto you, love your neighbor. You know, yep. she just believed in, in that kind of basic foundation. She didn't necessarily read the Bible. You know, I, I didn't come up in a home where anybody really knew or had a relationship with Christ in that way. We just went to Catholic schools and that was our foundation. But for me, God was always very real from about the time I was seven years old because I started being sexually abused by um, my older half-brother hmm. when I was a little girl. It happened to my sister also, and it was a repeated thing over the course of a couple of years. And I, I mean, my entire, my paradigms were broken. And my life was broken in a lot of ways at hmm. a, at a, as a child. And I would, you know, lay in my room at night and I would just cry. I was so freaked out. Like, why is this happening to me? What? I don't know what's going on, what, you, you know, I would, I would kind of shut down with paralysis and, and what I, I, I knew that God was always in the room with me and because he would always comfort me and tell, tell me it's spiritual warfare, honey, and the bad spirits want to break your good spirit. And it's, that's, that's what this world is, is about, you know, and mm-hmm. it's weird because as childish as that sounds, I carried that little lesson in my heart through my whole life. Like, it's spiritual warfare. The bad spirits want to break and destroy your good spirit. And and I encountered relationships. I encountered experiences and situations. And I realized that, wow, there is something dark and evil that uses even people who love us to try to destroy us, mm-hmm. to destroy the calling in our heart. And it's a spirit thing. And and it was it was years later when I first read in Ephesians about spiritual warfare. We yeah. wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, right? And mm-hmm. I, and my, I mean, my my mind got blown because I realized, oh wow. And then someone told me to read the Screw Tape Letters and This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti, and and I that's it. You know, my life changed because I realized that my my fight wasn't even against the, my sexual abuser or people who hurt me or used 
bad, you know, negative words or, or and spoke, I mean, curses over me. Mm-hmm. My fight was against the enemy who used those people and who uses even well-meaning people to set up a, an entire victim's narrative for you to live within. It's quite demonic and it's quite specific and it's very much the enemy. Mm-hmm. And so going back to, you know, being a child, Jesus would always show up in the room with me and give, and I, I just knew that he loved me and that somehow or another he had a plan for me, even though this horrible thing was happening to me. And so by the time, you know, Catholic school made sense to me, being close to God and talking to him made sense to me. I always talked to him. I mean, he got me through, you know, and, and then there was a certain point, you know, when I got radically saved in my 20s where reading the Bible and coming into a knowledge of Christ in the Bible began to explain to me things that I'd always known and felt Mm -hmm. about the truth of God. Yeah. And what were those moments surrounding that, that radical salvation in your 20s? Like, what were some of the things that were kind of stirring or bubbling around those moments before you're like, you know what, like, I'm, I'm done with kind of my former ways and just, I really want to surrender my life and not have control over my, my life and my future. Oh man, I got it. I I got there late. You know, my twenties were all about, you know, me. I I mean, I really, you know, I really think when I think, when I look back on it, I realize like, you know, how much of my twenties were about my goals, my dreams, my aspirations, my Mm -hmm. thoughts, what I wanted to do, my, my flesh, my boyfriend, my this, my that, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, I, I spent a lot of time in, you know, my, 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 I was raised to be goal oriented. You set a goal, you achieve it, you move to the next one. So I really thought it was about what we do, you know, to get where we need to go. And, um, and I, and because I was, sexually abused and, and and then and then raped you know in mm. my in my early 20s as, or as excuse me as a teenage girl um when i was gosh i was 15 and um i my success for me in my 20s was about proving that i was worth something mm. so what was really going on with me in my 20s had nothing to do with confidence in christ it had everything to do with total low self-esteem zero self-confidence, but I was an overachiever. And on the outside to everyone around me, I looked very confident. And so, you know, I walked, I had a, a confident exterior, but my interior was really broken and fragile. And so I ended up in my, I guess by 27, I ended up running off with a really bad guy. Um, I did not know he was a really bad guy. I knew him for a month in Los Angeles, another month on the phone in when he left to Paris to go to, to work. He claimed to work as a model. I'd never dated anybody who was as good looking as him. And, you know, I, I mean, I certainly never dated anyone who was a model. I, you know, I was an academic, you know, all, mm-hmm. but, you know, went to college, went to law school. All my friends or my boyfriends were, you know, a part of my academic and college experience. And so, you know, here I meet this guy in a moment of severe um, struggle on the inside with myself and my confidence and my self-esteem. And I, you know, my my college fiance, who had been my best friend all through college, he, he and I were engaged to get married. We broke up because he got cancer and started cheating. 
you know, mm-hmm. in sort of his con- in his confusion, he didn't know what to do. You know, there's a lot of stuff going. I wrote a book. My first book is called Prodigal Daughter: A right. Journey Home to Identity, and and I get into all of this and into my testimony um, because it's such a powerfully crazy story of radical redemp- radical saving, and a radical kind of encounter with Jesus that I, you know, eventually the Lord said to me, "Okay, it's time to it's time to use." you know, the story of your life because I'm taking your mess and making a message. Mm. And, um, and yeah. And I mean, we all have had a mess and if we surrender, if we surrender our message to God, he makes the message out of them. And I, I realize, you know, and I say it all the time, you know, my history is simply his story, you know, spelled the same way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, and, uh, so you know, I ran off really young, got married to the wrong guy for all the wrong reasons, in a lot of pain, searching for myself, and ended up in a prison cell in Italy, and had a radical encounter finding Jesus Christ, and then finding myself through two years of being a star witness in a trial against this guy who apparently had an assumed identity, um, picked me off of a turnip truck, probably married me for papers, and was reputedly involved in an organization that was um, trafficking drugs around the world to buy arms for the Serbian civil war. Uh, it was a, yeah, it was a really, you know, kind of big, crazy story in Italy. Um, the first big crazy story there before the, the Amanda Knox one. And, um, I, that's what my first book, Prodigal Daughter is about, about that story and about really and truly about what God, how God showed up for me and put my life back together and how he encountered me and, and, you know, with some miraculous things that happened, but also with an understanding of the fact that because of my sexual abuse and because of my love of media and the escapism really that it represented to me, I, God showed me that my identity, like all of our identities comes into, it comes under attack from the second we're born. Mm-hmm. And he, he uses the things that we've been through, our brokenness, you know, my sexual abuse, my being raped as a teenage girl. He, he, the enemy kind of jumps on the back of all of that brokenness and, and begins to set up strongholds. Yep. That's what strongholds in the Bible are really all about. It's about our own emotional brokenness that the enemy can use to basically make us live our lives and react and deal with people and make decisions driven by brokenness and broken emotions mm-hmm. instead of driven by a knowledge and an, a, a real reasonable application, you know, of God's Word to our lives. And, mm-hmm. you know, I talk a lot in, in that first book and in, in my new book, I Choose Victory, about brokenness and really just understanding what brokenness is and recognizing how it destroys your life and your relationships with people and, and making the the decision to get healed of it. You know, I, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, and now Cynthia, I mean, you're remarried. So how hard was it for you to trust someone again? I mean, going through all of those things, um, with being cheated on, raped, sexually abused, all of those things. I mean, I can imagine there were some thought patterns that were shaped in your in your head about how you viewed yourself and how you would view men. So how did oh, you yeah. learn to trust again? You know, 
interestingly enough, it's it's like I, you know, my experiences, you know, caused me to become someone who kind of, I, you know, my walls had walls, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like, and so, and then I came home from that experience with, with my son, with a baby. Um, so I was a single mom now, you know, and, and I, I was very, very, very cautious about, you know, I, I sort of decided a couple of things. Well, you know, men are driven by one thing and I'm passably good looking. I'm going to control them before they can ever control me again. Mm. Um, I, you know, I, I, so I learned how to be the one in charge of what I considered was a game um, before, you know, so that I could win and they would no longer win in my life. I focused on my career because I was a single mom. You know, I didn't want any guy to get close to my son because I wanted, you know, I wanted to protect him from any guy that, you know, I just didn't feel there was a man who could be my son's father. I didn't feel anybody was good enough. And so I had my, you know, my private life. And then I had my life at home as a mom with my son. And it was very, very, very difficult uh, for, for, for me really, I, you know, I didn't really, I, I never let down the walls. What I did was just learn to, you know, control what compartments I would let people into. And mm. it really wasn't until I met, you know, I came to this place in my life where I looked at my life. I don't know. My, my son was around 13 years old at the time. And I, you know, I kind of was like, well, Lord, you know, I have this career that I, I, I dreamed of. You know, I've got the famous friends, the red carpets, the private planes, but you're really, you're distant now, you know, and you saved me in a prison cell and you gave me this son who was a part of that experience and he has saved my life repeat, repeatedly. But for the last 13 years, it's like I've been in control. And even though I talk about you and you're with me, I don't feel like you're on the throne in my life anymore. I'm on the throne. And I had a real come to Jesus meeting when my son was around 14, where I realized that I needed to surrender in a whole different way because I couldn't understand like, Lord, you've given me everything I thought I wanted and I'm still unhappy. That Mm -hmm. little girl place inside that is scarred, you know, no guy can heal it. No relationship can heal it and no amount of fame has healed it. So what's the problem? And that's when, um, you know, I, I really kind of got on my face and counted the cost and counted it all as lost, you know? And I was like, Lord, you know, you can take the cars, you can take the houses, you can take the friends, you can take the fame, you can take the TV shows. I really, it, it, it's not more important than what you taught me in that prison cell in Italy when an angel appeared to me and when, you know, when I encountered you in a radical way, you gave me this child. He was he's a he was a miracle, and you told me to raise him up, knowing you. And I, I've raised him in Hollywood, and I don't really think he knows you. And I don't I certainly don't make you first in our house. So take yeah. it all, but just but just you know, just become Lord of my life. Yeah. And shortly thereafter, I was on a flight, and I met uh, I met a man. I was not attracted to him. It wasn't that kind of a thing. He uh, saw that I had a Bible in my lap, and he reached in his briefcase, and he said, um, you know, I'm not hitting on you. It's just that, you know, I read the Bible, too, and I have a word for you. And he 
he gave me a word and it was literally right on point to what I was talking about about, you know, all day. And he ended up uh, spending some time with me on the plane. We did a, we did a five and a half hour Bible study. Um, and when I got off the plane, he had asked me if I would meet a friend of his who wanted people in Hollywood to sit on his board. Um, and I, and he said, look, you're an attorney by education. And my friend has this organization called the Pacific Justice Institute. And he's looking for some Hollywood folk, you know, because of the Christian organization that defends the rights of Christians to be Christians in America. Um, so he does a lot of work for churches and like they were on retainer by the U S government because the government constantly gets sued over the words in God, we trust on our money. You know, the atheist groups can't stand that. And so he was like, would you meet Brad? And would you consider being on his board? And I said, yes. Um, you know, you got to meet with us because I don't know him. And he had on a wedding ring and, you know, he said I, he was married. And, you know, so I was like, this is safe. Great. And we ended up getting together a couple of weeks later to meet his friend. And, you know, Brad was lovely. And uh, Roger, um, the, the band from the plane, who became my husband, you know, he and I would we'd communicate every now and then over the, you know, the next few months. And I would invite him and his wife and kids to come to different events to see, you know, like the Nickelodeon Kids' Choice Awards. And, you know, when he told me he had four sons, I was like, oh, I'm raising a son by myself. And I'd love to be friends with you and your wife because I have so many questions. And he was like, oh, okay, great. And sure. And, you know, and so I would invite him to these events, but he would always come, you know, with one or two of his sons and he'd make it an excuse for his wife. You know, she, you know, she couldn't come. She can't be here, blah, blah, blah. And one day, months into this, and, I, you know, I was dating someone else, and he was just my friend, and he had become kind of a prayer partner of sorts. And I called him out of the blue one day, and I said, I need to pray with you about something for my son. And he said, okay, sure, you know, because he raised four sons, and they all knew the Lord. Mm -hmm. And I wanted that. You know, I, I was at the, I had surrendered. I was like, okay, God, teach me. What do I got to do? Yeah. And, you know, and so... um I was praying with him that day, and the Holy Spirit directed me to pray for him and his family, and for him to have clarity in his home, and for, for he and his wife, and, and, and I just felt, you know, they were going through something or whatever, and, and then he stopped me when we were done, and he said, he was very quiet, you know, and he said, um, can I ask you a question? And, you know, and I said, yeah, and he said, uh, why did you pray for me like that? And I said, oh, you know, I don't know. I just felt like the Holy Spirit, you know, kind of directed me to pray for you that way. And he goes, well, he goes, look, I need to be honest with you about something because I feel now like I'm lying to you. And he said, and I, your prayer was so beautiful. He said, but um, he said, you know, my wife and I are, um, you know, almost done with a divorce and we haven't lived together in a long time. I've been separated a long time and I feel like I'm not being honest with you. You're my friend and I should tell you this you know, at this point. And I said to him, you know, why, you know, why wouldn't you have told me that all along? You know, and he said, well, you know, it's not my place to talk about, you know, the woman, the mother of my children and my, you know, my ex-wife um, with another woman. It's inappropriate. And so I was just blown away yeah. by the fact that there was this guy in California who didn't want to throw his ex under a bus. I mean, I was like, wow, that's impressive. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Speaks what, a, character. what yeah. a good person. Yeah. Yeah. What a good person. What character. And so 
we really just became, you know, friends. And we were friends for, you know, quite a while. And I, you know, I was seeing someone else who wanted to marry me. And, you know, and and it just, you know, honestly, the Lord spoke to me eventually, you know. And, and, and I was away on a work trip with, you know, this other this man that I was seeing and, and, you know, and I really grappling with whether to marry him or not, because he was, he was Jewish. He was not a believer. And, you know, Roger would say to me, well, you know, you're not equally yoked. And I was like, yeah, I know, but he's very respectful of my faith and he doesn't mind me being a Christian. And, um, and, uh, you know, and, and he knows I'm celibate because at that point, you know, I surrendered that also because I was like, Lord, you know, I've dated my way for 26 years. Okay. Your word says that I should not have sex before marriage. I'm going to try that too, because having sex before marriage did, you know, in my other relationships didn't go anywhere. So, so I, you know, I, um, I would kind of tell him, you know, so I'm sure it's going to be okay. And he, you know, he never judged me, but Roger, you know, is very mature in the word. He was very mature in the word. And the basis of our friendship was, like I was asking him questions on a daily basis, yeah. you know, like what, what does this mean? What does that mean? You know, I, I, I've surrendered this, I've surrendered that. How do I walk this out? How do I walk that out? And so we were kind of stuck on the unequally yoked part because I was like, well, look, he's the only guy in Hollywood that would support my celibacy for Pete's sake. And so, you know, I don't know, it must be God. Why would you send me someone, you know, who would support this, who's, you know, not a Christian, you know, so maybe I'm going to say them, you know, how girls get. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so that was bad. And anyway, after a number of months, I was away on a work trip and, you know, I, I was in New Zealand and Roger was here in the States and my, you know, my, uh, this, this gentleman was there because again, he was managing me. So he, and I was working for his company and, and so we're halfway across the world and, I, every day I'd have my Bible questions and I would be set shooting them to Roger for answers, but it was like he had become my best friend and we, you know, we couldn't communicate a lot because I was on the other side of the world. So we made an appointment to talk and, um, and, uh, it was like, I need to talk to you tomorrow at, you know, can we set a time? And so we set a time and, you know, what the next day or whatever, we got on the phone and I said, okay, it's been a month since I've seen you. I got to tell you something. And he was like, what? And I said, well, you know, Rich is really supportive of my celibacy until he has a glass of, you know, a bottle of wine. And then, you know, then it's like, does no mean maybe, maybe, you know, and Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is getting like difficult to navigate. And so I said, I really need to talk to you and ask you some dating stuff. And so he was like, okay. And so I was like, well, you know, so how long, you know, since you're single, how long do you wait before you have sex with a girl? And he was like, wait, what? You know, and I'm like, because we'd never, you know, we'd never had those kind of conversations about the Bible. Right. You know, and, 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 and he was like, okay, look, Cynthia, let me explain something to you. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, um, I got married at 19, a virgin, because I had already given my life to Jesus. And he said, I was an atheist first. So when I set out to prove that the Bible was wrong, and in the process I got radically saved and realized that the Bible is not wrong about anything, 
I truly submitted and it said I truly submitted and surrendered my life to Christ. And so I got married as a virgin. And he said, I was with one woman for 26 years. We have four sons. And he said, and now that I'm single, I will not be with another woman unless and until she becomes my wife. And, and I sat there on the other side of the world and it was literally, I heard audibly and it was like somewhat like, like a curtain was opened on a stage or like scales fell off my eyes. Like it literally sounded like that. And I heard God audibly say to me, this is your husband. And I mean, I just, all I could do, Brooke, was start crying because I, I was sitting there thinking, oh no, Lord, I have so friend zoned him. He is so deep in the friend zone. This can (laughs) never happen. And it was so radical, like what I heard. And I just thought, this is crazy, God. I mean, I'm, I'm not even attracted to him, I don't think. And what's going on? And, and I just cried. That's it. I couldn't, I just cried. And finally, after a few very awkward moments of me crying and him saying nothing, he said, he chuckled and he said, oh, I wondered when you were going to figure it out. And, and I knew that's when I knew that he knew. And we, you know, I basically got on a plane the next day, flew back to the States and we had a conversation about how we were going to get married and how we were going to navigate it because I said, look, you know, I come from dysfunction and divorce. And I, I, I said, well, my parents were great and successful and, and, and they stayed friends even after they divorced until the day that my father died. I said, you know, I don't, the dysfunction I come from is the world I grew up in. I'm like, you know, my girlfriend was Candace Bush now and she wrote Sex in the City and mm-hmm. gay guys ran Sex in the City. And so I learned everything about dating from gay men. And I don't know how to have a, re- a healthy relationship. relationship yeah. Right. And so God took me on a journey of four years of courtship and honor and and celibacy while, you know, waiting for your wedding night and healing. You know, it it was in, yeah, it was healing. You know, he was teaching me everything I didn't know about how to be in a godly relationship. Right. For the first time in my life. And talk about like a redemptive story of you almost being forced to build a friendship with a man and have trust with a man because trust was burned over and over and over again in your, in your life. Even when you committed your life to Christ, you still had, you know, trust issues because it it just takes a while to like rebuild that. So to be able to build like a good solid foundation of a friendship um, with Roger is just kind of crazy how the Lord just like took the scales off your eyes so that you could, you know, date and marry the right way. Totally. We're going to take a quick break from our show to discuss Patreon. Patreon is a secure site that allows creators to make albums, videos, and podcasts like the one you're listening to now. So if you enjoy Write It Down, please head over to our website, xvxiii.com or spell out 1513.com in your browser. Click on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and show your support. Write It Down is made possible by the 1513 Network, so please send over your love, your support for the other shows as well. If not, just stick with Write It Down because I'm the coolest, the realest, the illest. Anyways, back to the show. What I sense from you, 
um, which I think the audience does as well, is that you're a super powerful woman. So did you ever struggle with feeling like you were too much, but also not enough at the same time? Because I think women do struggle with that. Oh, that is so well said. Yes, feeling yes, feeling like you're too much and not enough at the same time, which is really and truly the duplicitousness of the devil. I mean, it's like Satan, like how can how can you have an awareness of how amazing you are and smart you are and powerful you are and capable you are while also struggling with self-esteem? Yeah. <laughs> well, not, you know, while not feeling or while feeling like you're just not enough. It, it is such a, that's so not God. And that is so the state of mind that I was in and that most intelligent, strong, beautiful women that I meet, you know, are in. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I totally understand um, that statement. I, I understand that question. And, and, and the short answer is, yeah, I totally, totally experienced that. What do you think are you some know? practical ways to kind of move past that? And I don't want to limit it just to women because I do think that men struggle with that as well. I think there's that level of like, am sure. I good enough? You know, are people proud of me? Do they see what I'm doing? Is my work being affirmed? but then also having kind of like the fragile ego behind the scenes. So what do you think are some practical ways um, for people? I mean, besides acknowledging that the Lord their savior and can save them from that, but maybe some ways that you have built those disciplines in your life to, to change that thought pattern. Well, what I did was I embarked on a journey of inner healing and I realized that, when we are when, when there's an emotion that makes us think in a way that it doesn't make sense it's counterintuitive it, it doesn't line up with what we know about ourselves and if we know god it doesn't line up with what we know god has said about us so usually that thing is linked to some area of brokenness that is linked to an event a mindset something or someone in your childhood. Mm -hmm. And so I I really dove into inner healing that look at, you know, the cause and effect of the traumas in our childhood. And that, that really, you take that to Christ and he heals it. And that really shut down a lot of the enemy's ability to use the experiences that broke me as a child to drive me, you know, those broken emotions, anger, fear, sadness, low self-esteem, depression, um, not feeling worthy, um, unforgiveness, you know, big time, like confronting all of that and allow and bringing it into submission to the Word of God, and allowing Jesus to be the one to heal those broken emotions stops my life from being driven by emotions that are just not true. Mm. And like, you know, like, yes, I am enough. I'm enough in Christ because He says I'm more than a conqueror through Him because He loves me. And so, you know, or I don't need to have fear for my future because Faith and fear can't live in the same temple. I am the temple of God. And the Word says, God didn't give me a spirit of fear, mm. but of power, love, and a sound mind. Yep. And so learning that the weapons of our warfare are not, 
are actually mighty to the pulling down of strongholds is critical. Yeah. You know, it's critical. And, and that really, you know, that's a very, I get into the, you know, a lot more lengthy discussions of this stuff and, and actually like, you know, the, the, the tools for inner healing and what have you in my book, but that's really kind of the long and short of it. Brokenness will, will break your life. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, 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 and I, you know, we've worked, my husband and I do a fair amount of counseling with other people in this, in, in this area because the inner healing I went through uh, was something that he introduced me to. He had been involved in, in, in that ministry for a good decade before he met me. And he just has a natural anointing for it. And it radically changed my life yeah. and saved me. Like just yeah. a radical, you know, it was, it was exactly what I needed to surrender my life to Christ in a real way where, you know, okay, I've now, I, I, I can live for Jesus. You yeah. know, I have a, I, this is, it becomes lifestyle Christianity instead of just the words that come out of your mouth. Right. And why do you think people, I mean, I think just because I'm in my twenties, so I would say specifically in their twenties are scared to make that decision to give their life over to Christ. Because I think a lot of times people are under the common misconception that when you give your life to Christ, you're just going to become just a completely different person. Like he wants to almost give you a personality transplant, but something that you said in girls club today was just like, God's not looking to, to change you into somebody else. He wants to make you more of who he created you to be. And I think there's so much power in that, that like, I've not given the same calling on my life as you are, Cynthia. Like God gave you a certain set of gifts. God gave you a certain, um, a personality that relates to certain people and me a completely different one. So how, how would you say, kind of partnering both those questions people are are scared if they become a christian they're going to become like weird not themselves anymore um right type of thing with the identity what would you what would you say that um you'd pour into that well i I mean i think it's i mean you state it very succinctly and accurately people think that if they give their life to jesus you're not going to have any more fun Mm -hmm. i mean i did you know i was like okay hold on a second you know what if he's, or they become afraid, yeah. you know, like, like for me, it was, it sounded like this. Oh no, I'm not going to have any more fun. All of my friends aren't going to be able to relate to me. I'm going to have to wear really ugly clothes and I'm going to be sent to Africa to be a missionary. I don't know if I want to do this, God. Yeah. I love you, but this is a lot. Yeah. You know? The brand of Christianity. <laughs> yes. Yes, exactly. And it's like, or I'm going to have to get pink hair and look like the lady on Christian TV. You know? <laughs> yes, I know what you mean. You know, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and also I would look at, you know, because I secretly, because I loved Jesus, eat all through my career, I would secretly watch TDN because my boyfriend who, you know, the first fiance I had, who kind of, he was really the reason the walls got really thrown up because, you know, we broke up and I re- my rebound was the, the one in Italy that I ran off and married. Yeah. I mean, he was the, he, the rebound relationship took me to prison. It was the real relationship where I let my walls down and got my heart broken that really messed me up. And, but his parents had introduced me to, to um, they, they were discipling me and they introduced me to TDN a Christian network. And so 
I would watch PBN and, you know, I didn't really see anybody on there that I thought, you know, I could relate to until one day I saw this little advertising to go to see this really cute little blonde woman who was preaching at T.D. Jake's at a T.D. Jake's conference and her name was Paula White. Mm-hmm. And so I go to this conference and Paula's there in Florida and, and we're, we're, we're good friends now. And I, I, I mean, I, so I love this story and um, I go to this conference and I mean, here comes this hot blonde in Gucci boots and she's like dressed. Like more your me. speed, she's yeah. Like hip. Yeah, you know she's hip and she's cool. And I mean, I'm at the height of working on television, sitting in with Regis Philbin at that point, and and traveling around the world. And I mean, I looked at her and she preached her socks off, and I was just I couldn't wait to get to the altar to get prayer from her. And I was like, I I, I literally looked at her and I went, oh 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 my gosh, God, I can do this. I can be a woman of God like her, mm-hmm. like I could be me. You mm-hmm. mean I could be me, God, and dress like me and walk like me and talk like me and still be godly. Right. Like that's when it that's when it clicked for me. It was literally seeing someone who opened up about being from 12 generations of dysfunction, 12 trailer parks and all kinds of sexual abuse mm-hmm. and owning it. She was owning her testimony yep. and there was power in her. And the crazy thing is, you know, when she prayed over me in a crowd, I, I mean, there was like, you know, 3,000 women at the altar. And when Paula, and I mean, I fought my way to the front. And when Paula prayed for me, she actually stopped. I did you know, I was just standing there waiting in a crowd and she walked by me and then she stopped and she came back to me and she prayed over me and she said to me, there is, there is a calling on your life and there is power in your voice and you are, are, are called to preach the gospel. And I remember looking at her and I was thinking, well, no, I mean, that's probably me receiving my Emmy. <laughs> and it's like, you know, on Channel 7 or something. But she was really, I mean, it was crazy. And, and the crazy thing is, you know, I ran into her in a restaurant, you know, two days later because she was in town for the conference apparently. And, and then I was like, she eats that Mr. Chow, like, oh, this woman goes to, like, real restaurants, like the kind I go to. And it was just so funny because, in all honesty now, you know, she's, we, we ended up kind of connecting and, and, and then would run into each other through the years. And now we're very good friends, and we, we have now done ministry together and stuff. And, and I, I told her, I said, you know, you never know. And I learned that from her. Hmm. You never know how God is using exactly who you are, how you dress, how you look, and how you live to impact another person. Because yeah. his, his kingdom is so creative and different, and there's so many colors and shapes and sizes. And I just, my heart now is to be a part of promoting the, di- the real diversity and creativity of Jesus oh, yeah. and, and what the world looks like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's why even on Girl Club, I'm like, no, I want, I want, I'm going to have some hot girls who are Asian and Mexican and brown and blonde surfer chicks. And Girl Club is about what girls look like. And God made us all really different. And, and we should celebrate that. And we should encourage each other to be 
and love and embrace exactly who you are because God will use you in a unique way. You don't want to be used in the same way he uses everybody else. No. You want to be, you know, this is a season, I believe, I call this, the, you know, an Esther rising moment. Mm-hmm. I really believe that the Esthers around the world are rising, and God is calling all of us out, and we are very, very, very uniquely created for such a time as this. Oh, I agree. I agree 100%. And I think that's where the power of comparison, you know, loses its chains on us is the fact that we don't have to all look, dress, you know, act the same male or female um, in order to be impactful for the kingdom of God. And, and, And something that you said, too, just about like, you never know the life that you're living, the impact that it has. I have to say, I think that those that are listening to this episode right now, somebody in their car right now or um, getting ready in the morning or about to go to bed at night or listening to this and hearing the words that you have said and and the power that you um, that you present with your testimony and they can go, wait. If that happened for Cynthia, that can happen for me. And I think um, so many people are waiting for their big, you know, aha moment. But I think that this episode is could be a, a, a pivot in somebody's story. And so I, I, I thank you for for being so candid on this show to share what God's done in your life and to be bold, but to also still continue doing what you're called to do is is be on camera and to be on the radio or to write books. Um, and so that's just super powerful to me and something that I'm really thankful that you've shared on write it down. And before we end the show, when I get to our write it down, um, little nugget of wisdom, I want to ask you a few fun rapid fire questions, um, just to get to know you a little bit better. You're, um, so here's the first one. Are you a coffee or tea girl? Ooh, I'm a coffee girl every morning in the United States, but I live part of the year in England. And when I'm in London, I am definitely a tea girl. English breakfast. Ooh, and what do you put in your coffee or tea? Are you cream um, and sugar? I actually put coffee or tea in my cream and sugar. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. What is your favorite movie genre? Oh, wow. You know, I like a good rom-com. I do. I like a good, yeah. I like, I'm a girl. I like a good rom-com. And yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of something that sounds a lot more intellectual than that. But, you know, (laughs) I'm a chick. Same. No, I'm the same way. I was uh, babysitting the other night and I'm scrolling on Netflix and I was like, every time I'm going to do a rom-com. It's like, it's who I, even if I've seen it five times, I'm going to watch it again because it just, I love it so much. Um, Who is your favorite musician? Oh, wow. My favorite musician, all around musician is Mm. um, my favorite my favorite brother and my brother, Lenny Kravitz. Lenny Kravitz. And so what's, so you guys are siblings? We, we have called each other. It's a long kind of crazy, funny story. I I, I always say it's a black thing, but we have (laughs) called each other brethren. Yeah. It's a a black thing. We have called each other brother and sister since we were 15 years old. And we, you know, my, his mom was like my stepmom. I called her mom until the day she died. I actually buried her mm-hmm. for him when she died and got to lead her to Jesus. Wow. Um, 
in in the last few years of her life. We used to go to Bible study together, and that's amazing. But um, we needed we couldn't figure out how to explain the fact that as a as a as a really hot guy and, a, and an attractive girl, we were best friends mm-hmm. and brother and sister, and everybody just kept trying to make it more than it was. And it wasn't for us. It was very pure for us, and it always has been. And so we started calling each other brother and sister when we were young, um, to partly to protect the, the sanctity of what what we knew was a very godly friendship. Yeah, absolutely. That's an incredible yeah. story. I didn't know that. Um, yeah. The last little fun question is, when did you get your nose pierced and why? I noticed that. I like it. <laughs> So I got my nose pierced in New Orleans It when I was about 29, 28, well, about 29 years old, right, because I had had my son. He was an infant. He was a little baby, and we had just come home from Italy, and I was visiting my brother. I was visiting Lenny in New Orleans. He, he decided he went to New Orleans one weekend to play music, got on the back of his Harley and drove from New York City, loved it so much. He bought a house in the French Quarter, called me and said, you gotta come see what I just bought. So I get on a plane, I go to New Orleans, and and he said, "Let's pierce your nose." And I said, "Lenny, I bled all over Mom Roxy's couch when you pierced my ears five times in high school." <laughs> no, you're not piercing my nose. And he goes, "No, I'm not going to pierce your nose." But I got this really great girl, and she's like the piercer to all the rock stars here in New Orleans. Got to get your nose pierced, man. So I was like. Okay, cool. I've always wanted it done, but let's do it. And so I, I go to this shop. He has this girl named Angel. She's bald, and she was she was tattooed all over her head, all over her body. Mm-hmm. Very bizarre looking. Um, and he and she pierces my nose, and it hurts like crazy. And all the way walking through the French Quarter back to his place, he I could tell he had this look of panic on his face, and I was like why am I bleeding so much? And I wouldn't stop bleeding. And he kept changing like the tissues and the, and, and, and I was like, I don't understand why I'm bleeding so much. And he was like, no, 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 it's totally normal. It's totally normal. I mean, I didn't bleed like this at all, but it's totally normal girl. Like you got to trust me. You got to trust me. And I'm like, yeah, but we've gone through a roll of toilet paper and I won't stop bleeding. And we're literally going through the French quarter. There's blood everywhere. And him with the toilet paper and and this look of panic on his face, like, how am I going to explain to her mom what I did to her? She's, our moms are going to kill us. Like, they're going to kill us. It took a year for my nose to finally heal. Oh, a year. Like, it didn't bleed Ugh. the entire year, but it hurt. It, it tried to get infected. It was like everything you could imagine. And then it oh finally healed. And it, I have had my nose pierced now literally for, I don't know, almost I mean, almost 30 years. Like, wow. and, and, and I've never I've never taken it out. I it, wouldn't it either. It really just... Yeah, it doesn't show on camera. And my first job on camera, my first real job, was working for VH1 and MTV Networks. And when I started working, um, this would have been a few years after, a couple years after it was pierced, uh, the woman who ran the talent department said to me before I was supposed to go and do my first day in the studio, she said, oh, yeah, you got to take your nose ring out. And I was like, oh, she told me the night before, actually. And I said, um, okay, I mean, I... I it just healed. Like I've only had it a couple of years. I've never <laughs> I've taken it out. And, yeah. yeah. Right. And she's like, no, but you got to take it out. We've never had anyone on camera with a nose piercing. So I, I go down. Okay. So this is BC before Christ. 
Mm-hmm. I have two shots of tequila and I go to a nose piercing place in New York <laughs> and I tell them you need, yeah, I go, you got to take it out. My new job doesn't want me to have it in. And I just got it two years ago and it literally just healed like eight months ago. And this is horrible. Yeah. So they take it out. I go to work then the next day and I, I do my filming. And at the end of the day, the guy that ran the channel at the time, who's president of the channel, a guy named John Sykes and John calls down to the studio and he says, could you ask her to come to my office? And I'm like, oh, man, what did I do wrong? I, I, I thought I was okay. And I go to his office and he looks at me and he goes, so I've been watching you on the feed, you know, within the network all day. And I go, yeah. And he goes, you're great. And I go, oh, thank you. And he goes, yeah. How long have you been, how long have you known how to read a teleprompter? And I said, oh, Actually, I lied. I've never been on a teleprompter before. I just knew I could do it. And he's like, wow, well, you really fooled us. You're great. And I go, great. And I go, did you just call me here to compliment me? And he goes, well, yeah. He goes, but there is a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? And he goes, where's the nose ring, man? This is rock and roll. Like, I thought you looked really cool with the nose ring. Why did he take <laughs> oh it out? And I was like, well, because... The head of the talent department told me to take it out. And he goes, oh, no, I'm her boss and yours. Go get the nose ring back in right now. And I literally was like, are you kidding me? You got to be joking. So I left him, had five shots of tequila, went back to the same shop and said, could you please put the nose ring back in? Did it (laughs) hurt again to get it back in? Oh, Oh, it was it was worse than the first time. Yeah. My, I mean, my nose, yeah. my, nose, my nose was like, like you're joking, right? Mm-hmm, How mm-hmm. much torture are you going? And so I put it back in. And from that moment, a couple of times through the years, I had a network say, does the piercing show up? And I'm like, you can't see it on camera. And no, it doesn't come out. Yeah. And so that was that. I've never, ever really been yeah. asked about my, it again. My uh, little yeah. piece of advice before we get to your piece of advice for write it down is, uh, you just make sure you keep that in until you die. Just don't touch it. No yeah. Need. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, no going, it, it's, going, it's, it's going nowhere. And funny thing is I forget that it's there until somebody says, hey, let's talk about the nose ring. I love like, it. Oh, yeah. I love it so oh, much. Thank you. Yeah. It looks thank great. You. Okay. So thank we're getting you. to that point where we ask each guest to give the audience a nugget of wisdom to write down. So Cynthia Garrett, what is your write it down? Well, you know, I've been really thinking about this and my write it down really is about my new book, which is called I choose victory moving from victim to victor. And when I turned in that book, I don't know, at some point this year. And, you know, the book just came out last month and Mm. I turned it in and I'm not kidding you, but the gates of hell literally came against my life. And I remember looking at my husband and I was crying one day and he was, you know, he got diagnosed with cancer and he's fine now, but it was a big battle. And, and then my sexual abuser, I realized I looked up and, and found out that my sister and my sexual abuser had stolen our life story and made a movie about it. And the movie was to become Apple's first feature film release. <laughs> I mean, oh I, I, it was a war. Like, the, the, the year became a war. And I looked at my husband at one point and I said, I don't understand what God is doing. How could he have me turn in a book called I Choose Victory, Moving from Victim to Victor, and I feel like a victim 
in a bigger way than I've ever felt like a victim in my life. And I really had to sit with that question as we're going through the pre-marketing stuff and, and going through the different chapters in the book and what have you. And on the journey, God taught me a lesson and I wrote it down. And it was something he said to me. And when I was really questioning and crying, like, God, why, why am I having to deal with all of this stuff again? Why am I having to deal with being raped of my identity again, with that feeling of being raped of my identity? Why is all of this happening again? Why am I having to confront my sexual abuse again? Why is it now public for the whole world? And there were reporters literally all over the place trying to get me to make comments and statements about this movie which is called The Banker and is on Apple and through, mm. you know, they pulled the film and uh, we went through a lot and it is now streaming on the Apple platform. But um, what the Lord said to me was, Cynthia, daughter, everybody, he goes, I wanted you to be sensitive to what, it, what you were saying, you know, because, and here's the write it down. Most people don't choose to be victims they just don't know how to choose victory. Wow. And that's my write it down because I realized that my book is a lesson. It's a how to, how can I choose victory? And, and I realized that everything I do is about helping people confront, confront the victim's narrative that is written for their lives and helping them find the breakthrough so that they can choose victory, giving them the lessons and the tools so that each of us, knows how to choose victory. And I knew that I needed that life lesson because you need to be sensitive when you're making a statement and telling people, hey, you're literally acting like a victim. You know, when you look at the nation that we're living in today, I mean, I'm watching movements that are totally rooted in victim mentality. Like, I can't even believe it. And I realized, though, that we're called as believers to have the wisdom to understand what's behind why people do what they do and say what they say. And when we have godly wisdom, we then know how to fight what they're doing or speak into what they're doing. And mostly we know how to defeat the enemy that is driving what they're doing. And so that's why I write it down. I love that. You know, that There's most, so much power yeah. in that. And so before I let you go, um, where can the audience find your book? Oh, wow. So my book is available on Amazon and at bookstores, you know, booksellers, wherever you are, Barnes and Noble, BAM, all of that. Um, It's called I Choose Victory, Moving from Victim to Vicar. And you can also find out everything you need to know or get the book at ichoosevictory.com. I mean, that's actually, you can also find out about Girl Club and about my TV programs and everything that Cynthia Garrett Ministries does is to help people choose victory. So I choose victory.com will point you to all of that stuff, um, materials. And, you know, we have, a, I have a workbook called uh, for I choose victory coming out soon. And um, yeah, Absolutely. it's also CynthiaGarrett.org. Awesome. And I will be sure to include that in the episode notes. So if you are um, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you will be able to see how to connect with Cynthia Garrett. Cynthia, thank you so much for joining us on Write It Down. Thank you, Brooke. God bless you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to the Write It Down podcast. This podcast is a part of the 1513 Network. You can catch a variety of shows on their website, 1513.com. If you enjoy listening to Write It Down, please subscribe, share with your friends, and if there's any ink left in your pen, write a review. For more content, follow the fun on Instagram by following at W-I-D-P-O-D. That spells WIDPOD. Super cool. Stands for Write It Down podcast, but it's abbreviated to WIDPOD. Anyways, thanks for listening, and we will catch you later.